Hey everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Daniel Reinhardt to talk with him about his brand new book, Rethinking the Police, an officer's confession and the pathway to reform. Now here on the podcast, we want to engage in conversations that are sometimes difficult to have, conversations to where there aren't necessarily easy answers to it, but we want to engage in those conversations because they're important, because they're much needed. And that's what we want to do here at the Lotus Quarter is create a safe place to have those difficult conversations. And today we're going to be talking about rethinking the police and, you know, Daniel has been or was a police officer for 24 years in fact one of the really cool things is that he was a police officer near uh where i live and near cleveland ohio and it's always you know it's just one of those things it's always cool whenever you hear somebody oh yeah yeah, yeah. i know where you're t- i know where you're from and so we're going to be talking with him about it and you know just looking at our country over over the last several years, the last decade, and even more than that, you just know that things need to change, that there does need to be reform. But again, that can be such a difficult conversation to have because of so many different factors. But today we want to have that conversation or continue the conversation that has already been taking place in so many other places as well. We're going to get into um, just so many other things. And I really appreciate Daniel's perspective on it. Now, if you've been on this journey of lifelong learning, you know, I would just recommend please subscribe to my Substack to where each week I'm giving three things that I'm learning from, three things that I'm learning about. And again, it could be anything because everybody learns something different from different things. And so it could be a book, it could be a movie, it could be a TV show, it could be a quote, it could be something from sports, it could be something from pop culture, it could be uh, a biography. Or it could be something from uh, the Loki series, whatever, whatever it is, or something from Marvel or Star Wars or whatever, or whatever other fiction or nonfiction thing that it is, because we can learn from so many different things. And all you have to do is subscribe to my Substack and go on the show notes, put in your email and it'll come into your inbox each and every single week. Now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Daniel Reinhardt about his brand new book, Rethinking the Police, an Officer's Confession and the Pathway to Reform. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Daniel, and then we will jump into the conversation. So Daniel Reinhardt served as a police officer near Cleveland, Ohio for 24 years. And after retiring from the police force, he was an assistant professor at the Heart of Texas Foundation uh, College of Ministry at the Memorial Unit, a prison in Rochere in Texas, and currently he is a, an Associate Director of Student Life and Applied Ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and currently lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife, Yvette. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Daniel, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about um, your book, Rethinking 
the police, but one of the places that I wanted to just begin our conversation is being a police officer. I, I just love hearing people's stories. And so I would just love to hear what drew you towards law enforcement and the police whenever you first entered. Yeah. Uh, well, before I tell you how I became a police officer, first, I want to say I was very proud to be a police officer and glad to be one. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. it wasn't like my life's dream. I got out of the army and moved back to the community that I was born and raised. And, you know, there were limited opportunities there. And I started taking civil service tests. And I took every civil service test they offered, and I ended up getting hired at the police department. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there uh, just, I'd just love to hear just a little bit more just about that of like, what, uh, like, where, did you choose the police? Was it just kind of like, well, I feel like this is kind of how I have to go? Or what, just tell me a little bit about it. So that. I needed to be gainfully employed. So I yeah. was taking these civil service tests. I was actually hired first as a corrections officer. And, yeah. and so I was working for the police department as a corrections officer. They gave, the, then, you know, the next logical step is, you know, I liked working there. I liked the work. And so I took the police test when they offered it. And then I became a police officer. And, you know, it was in the town that I was born and raised. So yeah. I was excited to be there. But again, as much as I loved being a policeman, uh, it, it wasn't like my life's dream. So, yeah. 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 But you, you stayed there for like around 20, I think 24 years. Is that right? Oh, yeah. You know, I love the job. I remember yeah. thinking, I, I can't believe they pay me to do this when, yeah. when I was a yeah. young officer because I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, t- talk me through, you know, obviously that's that's not what you're doing right now. So talk to me about like just navigating that decision and everything. How I ended up from a policeman to where I'm at now. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm a, I was, I was, I was working as a policeman for about six months and I became a Christian mm-hmm. and uh, I would say, let's see. So that was, I was 22, 23 years old around uh, 36 years old. I wanted to go back to college. I wasn't sure what to study. It was more just like, I, I never got a college education. It was something that I wanted to do. So I, I went back for a, um, I went uh, to Moody Bible Institute for a biblical studies degree and then after I finished that, I found out there was something called seminary. So I went and did a, a master of divinity. And then, you know, I just loved learning and, and being in that environment so much. I came to Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, which is only about five hours from the Cleveland area, and did my PhD mm-hmm. here in leadership. Mm. Yeah. So, so when I finished as a policeman, I, I ended up uh, coming to Southern and working here as a as a uh, adjunct professor. And I work in for the Dean of Students. Yeah. You know, what were, what were some of your favorite parts of being a police officer? What are some of the things that you enjoyed the most about it? What I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed it, especially initially the camaraderie, you know, working with the Mm -hmm. same guys, Mm -hmm. uh, as a young guy, I enjoyed the excitement, you know, it was something new every night. You never knew what was going to happen. And I mean, you get to do things that uh, normal people just don't get to do. I mean, most people haven't been in car chases and foot chases and, yeah. and all the things that, that come with being a policeman. So it, it was just uh, it was such an exciting job. And you're so close knit with your with the other officers. That was probably my favorite uh, part of the job, uh, certainly initially. Mm-hmm. What what was uh you know, one or two of the challenges that came with being a police officer? Well, I, as you'll see from the book, um, police agencies can can kind of be plagued by toxic leadership and, you know, problematic mm-hmm. culture. 
these aren't all things that maybe um, you understand initially, but they take their toll on you over time. Hmm. I just had a conversation, an officer called me who I hadn't talked to in years because he heard about the book. And, you know, he saw a lot of things in his time. He was a narcotics detective and uh, uh, was an officer in, in street crimes. And, you know, he told me, he said, all the stress that happened on the street, it was nothing compared to the internal stress of a police department. Mm -hmm. I, I'd just be curious to hear like some of your thoughts or any thoughts that you have expanded on that of just like comparing and contrasting of just what um, that former officer said of like the stress on the streets and comparing it with the stress of, you know, um, the toxic leadership and everything inside the police department. Yeah. So, you know, the police, police departments have a very strict hierarchy and it's necessary because there are times that, you know, a lieutenant or sergeant, whoever's in control of the scene has to give an order and there just isn't time to have a group discussion about it and decide, you know, whether mm -hmm. you want to do it or not. So you're equipped with a lot of positional power in this strict hierarchy of power. And because of that, police leaders really don't have to be influential. In other words, you have the authority to tell someone what to do. And if they don't, there's serious implications for it, uh, for not doing it. And uh, as, as I argue in the book, I would say that there's the golden rule of policing leadership is do whatever you need to do to maintain control. So there's just some uh, practices that police leaders will do that maybe on the surface um, can be interpreted to do one thing, but they really have a hidden motive and they affect officers in a certain way to teach you a lesson and to get people to do exactly what you want them to do. I guess uh, police leadership, in a sense, often isn't concerned with what officers think, only with what they do. Mm. So when you have that positional power, as long as they're doing what you say, really doesn't matter much what they think or, you know, uh, coercion is just as good as cooperation. Mm. Essentially. Mm -hmm. Would you mind? Yeah. Uh, would you mind just giving an example of what you were talking about of, um, of them uh just just one of the the commands or stuff that you were referring to well i'll give you so i was a defensive tactics instructor for the police mm -hmm. department and it was something that i really liked doing and there yeah. was always a saying on the police department don't let the management know what you like because that's what they'll come for and it, sometimes it was said in jest but you know there's examples that kind of backed up that thinking so i had a, a disagreement uh with a who was a lieutenant at the time, lieutenant or captain, not like a confrontation, just a, a mm -hmm. disagreement on the way things should be done in the police training. And yeah. I came in and got a letter that said that I was no longer needed as a defensive tractor, uh, uh, defensive, defensive tactics instructor, because my, and I think the letter said something like, uh, I was just, my attention was needed with other matters. And, but it was very clear what was done. We had a disagreement. Mm -hmm. He didn't like it and I was going to pay for it. Mm, and so mm -hmm. that sends a message. Now, above oh, yeah. board, you can't, you know, the letter didn't say that, but he knew yeah. I would understand it. Oh, oh, Everybody that, knows that what's was, going on. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on like, and, and it's probably impossible for, for those, or let me just say this. I can relate to in a sense of, like the toxic work environment. And I'm sure lots of people can, can relate to that. Can you compare and contrast to me 
of like, let's say that it's just, you know, a business like toxic leadership environment versus like, uh, like the police in, in a toxic leadership environment, like the similarities, the differences in that just, just for us to understand just a little bit better. Well, just generally speaking, you know, a business runs from usually what, eight to five and mm-hmm. the police run 24 seven. And there's many different, uh, places you can go and work and things you can do and different assignments. And the people above you have the authority to put you where they want to put you. So you can find yourself on night shift real quick. You, yeah. so, so the the consequences for disagreement or the, the power that they have to affect your life is probably a little different than just the average company. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that makes sense because they, they have access in a sense, they have access to your full 24 hours and, and then, uh, uh, in a lots of businesses, just like, okay, it might be toxic, but it's only toxic from like eight to 5 PM. Yeah. And think about, well, I'll give you another example as a rookie, yeah. I inadvertently not, and I put this in the book, did something that upset the sergeant to this day. I don't know what it was, but he made it very clear. And I spent two weeks in the booking room on night shift. So that was nonstop drunk people, people, combative people coming in and out of the, you're booking them in, you're having to, and it's just chaos. And that's what I did for eight hours a day for two weeks in the middle of the night. Yeah. You know, I, I'd be curious to hear, what are some of the things that just like the average person like myself that, that we don't necessarily know about the police. And again, it could be, you know, good things, challenging things, bad things, whatever. In relation to, to what? Uh, just, just, I guess just in general, cause I'm just thinking of my, like my own ignorance. Like there's just a lot of things that I don't know. And so I would just be curious to hear from your perspective of like, what are some of the things, and again, good or bad that you're like, Hey, because of your experience, you've seen it this way that yeah. maybe like the average person like myself wouldn't necessarily know yeah. about, about the police. So, uh, in, in 2015 or 16, we instituted a, a use of force civilian review board. And what they did was they reviewed all our force. And I'm telling you that because they were just surprised by this. Believe it or not, policemen are not highly trained uh, in in the use of force because they can't be. Um, and what do I mean by that? Yeah, you can go to the department training. But for instance, I wrestled my whole life. And you know how many takedowns I've been able to develop in a lifetime of wrestling? Two. That really work. And that so we're not like trained ninjas like people think. So when people start fighting with police officers, uh, they're, they're not these highly skilled uh, uh, martial artists. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it takes a lot of time and um, uh, the potential for injury and all these things are really trained to that level. So the average police officer is never going to be able to do it. So when they have to use force against people, they can't put them in the magic, you know, pinky finger hold it takes sometimes greater aggression to get somebody under control who's very aggressive and uh, even you know i didn't have a lot of issues when i was uh when i was younger when i was training but even as i got older even though i had wrestled my whole life and played combat sports when i was in my later 40s i didn't move the same and it was you know i wasn't it was more difficult for me to get you know a younger big guy under control and sometimes i had to use more force because it's the only way you can do it now, my book is obviously about the problem of brutality, but that's pushing yeah. back the other way to say, you know, they just can't put them in what you see on television where they just throw them on the ground and their hand. Yeah. Grind, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and that, that's why I like I ask I like asking the question like that because that's something that unless unless you're going through the experience, you you just make assumptions and everything. I, I'd be curious to hear what what's another one of those things that uh, most people might just might not know about the police. Yeah. So you know, on the TV shows when they point the gun at them and people get on the ground. Yeah. If you point a gun at somebody who doesn't have a gun, they might grab that gun. They might not listen to you because they know you can't shoot them. Now what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. If you grab them with the gun in your hand, now you're both going to be fighting for the gun. So just yeah. just when I see stuff like that, if you point a gun at someone and they know they're not armed, I mean, people that have a street mentality, they're not going <laughs> to do what you say. They're going to see if you can make them. And now, so there's just an example of people think, well, if they point the gun, people listen. People don't always listen. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. TV it does not represent what the real world looks like. I know, I know we know that, but you yeah. people tend to just make assumptions from their only experience. My dad did a ride along with me uh, when I was on night shift as a young officer, and he had he grew up in the same uh, place that I did, so he knew how violent it was there. He read the paper, he saw, and what he saw happen in that night, he said, "I've never seen anything like this. I had no idea." Mm-hmm. So, if you've never been in that world, you, you're you're probably clueless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear what are some of the things that you um, took or learned from your time in the police force that you still use today, like lessons or anything like that? Um, I mean, it gives you a lot of experience with people. And so now I hear here I am a, a professor at Southern and and I've just seen and experienced uh, things that I know people around me have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so it gives you what it's given me, especially as a Christian, is just a lot of empathy for people because you deal with a lot of suffering, hurting people, and you see people in their worst day. And I guess that can have two effects. Some people, it hardens them to to humanity, but it's given me the ability to have a lot of grace for people and, and expect them to make mistakes, expect them to, to do things that they shouldn't do. So I guess uh, policing, is, in a sense, made me very patient uh, with people, um, and that's a gift, yeah. in a sense, for sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'd, I'd love just your perspective on is um, just as you were mentioning, you've had to deal with difficult people, I'm sure very, very intense situations as well. And even though many of us don't necessarily find ourselves probably in, in a, in a situation to where it's, it's very intense and the threat of fi- violence is real, we can deal with like emotionally intense situations. Mm-hmm. And I would just be curious to hear what's some like, whether, whether, concerns like de-escalating like situations or like dealing with people who are highly emotional and you just don't know what to do. I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on what you've learned about how to deal with people in very like emotionally charged and intense um, settings. Yeah. To always stay calm. It's been my experience and it is yelling at people doesn't ever seem to really calm them down. So yeah. main, being calm, talking to them. And I would say, there, there is that person out there that there's nothing you can do there they're, they might not they could be schizophrenic they could not even understand what you're saying or they're so intent on violence or getting away that there's nothing you can say but the majority of the people if you slow down if you show calmness uh you're you're able to calm them down and bring it to a peaceful resolution but it's a, it's a skill that you develop and you have to stay yeah. calm when they're not calm yeah 
were you all were you always that way or did you mention that was a skill that you had to develop what helped you do that well you learn because it goes from like hey if i have to wrestle with somebody on the job it's fun to as you get older this is the last thing in the world i want to do is wrestle with this guy on the ground to get him in handcuffs so it, mm-hmm. for me it was developing a skill that my goal was to get somebody to comply without me having to use any force. And I was willing to take as much time, as long as everybody was safe that I could and be as patient as I could. Um, because especially when, you know, you're in your forties and fifties, you don't want to be wrestling around with people, but yeah. Yeah. So it's, you, you, you get, uh, you, if you're a good officer and most of them are, you learn as you go on to use less and less force and studies show that the younger officers will tend to use more force more quickly. Mm-hmm. Were there any like tips or tricks or anything that helped you like bring that calmness or just um, de-escalate the situation that you just learned through your years of doing it? Well, what I did was I started to watch officers that I thought were good at it because there's some that aren't and there's some are. If I saw an officer, he had an attribute or something that I thought he did well, I paid attention to him. I studied him and then tried to emulate the way he did it. Yeah. Yeah. What were one of the things that you noticed from the officers that you tried to um, input into your own actions and everything? Yeah. The ones that were really good at talking to people listened and always Mm -hmm. stayed calm. And it was, you know, they just didn't. um, What I saw, because as a policeman, they they teach you you have to main control of situations, but they were able to main control, maintain control without being kind of using oppressive tactics or trying to, you know, just yell the person down. They, they stayed calm and maintained control that way. And just observing older officers that were really good at it and, and deciding that's how I want to be able to handle things too. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned earlier that you've written this book, uh, Rethinking the Police, and I always love hearing like the story behind it. And so I know a lot of, a lot of your journey is in, and you, you share a lot of your journey in the book, but I'd just be curious to hear, was there like a, a defining moment or was it just like a, a natural progression that led you to write this book or what sparked that? Uh, well, you know, it, it, there was a progression, but there were significant events that began mm-hmm. to shift my thinking um, early on becoming a Christian and then really realizing, you know, the way that I dealt with people. I had an experience where I was very aggressive with the guy and it just hit me when I got back in the car, like this guy could pop into my church on Sunday. And boy, what do you think? I'm such a big hypocrite. Here's this guy at church and look at the way he treated me. And yeah. that really started to shift my thinking. Um, then becoming, uh, I got promoted pretty early to sergeant and then to lieutenant. And seeing the inner workings behind uh, police leadership and then seeing me sort of emulate that style uh, at first, helped me realize what wait a minute i don't i don't want to be like this this is not the way to go and probably the most significant impact was towards the end of my career when i started my phd studies doing the the research for my dissertation really helped me see uh what i was missing and reshape my thinking and it was very impactful Mm -hmm. what'd you do your dissertation on so my dissertation uh basically the book reflects a lot of my dissertation it was a leadership Mm -hmm. model that could mitigate the problem of police brutality through cultural transformation. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want to get into that. One one of the stories that as I was going through the book, which really hit me, which I would love for you to share, because you talk about it being um, uh, just a, 
just a shifting moment for you too is a uh, is domestic violence incident that you had with somebody and i think you talk about it in the book mm-hmm. and you you pulled out your gun because you thought that uh i think that you thought that they had a weapon would you mind just sharing that story yeah that was a significant because i had been an officer for uh, a couple of years and on, on the police department i worked worked on you're familiar with lorraine so if you do two years on the lorraine police department just west of cleveland there's nothing you haven't seen in two years basically mm-hmm. every type of violent crime you've experienced well i had an incident where i thought a guy was stabbing a woman and i was convinced of it and i pulled my gun and i was telling him to stop and, you know, he didn't, he turned and came at me. All my training said was to shoot him, you know, center mass. It was dark. I couldn't see, I was convinced he had a knife. Um, but I didn't end up shooting him. And I tried to grab his arm, which, you know, might not have been too successful. If he had a knife, it could have cost me my life. Uh, in hindsight, there was no knife and he complies with me. And then I asked him like, why didn't you listen to me? Why didn't you get on the ground? And he said, well, I just came out so you could take me to jail. And so I walk him to the car. And like I said, I was just having a good time as a police officer. I can't believe they're letting me do this. This is so fun. Mm-hmm. And then I thought I almost just shot and killed a guy who wasn't trying to harm me in any way. And my hands started to shake, not for the fear of my own life. Cause I had been in situations where, you know, my life was in danger. It was like, it was the first time I grasped how much power I had and, and the, what decisions I could make, uh, how they could change our community, my life, his life. And uh, my, my perception that she was being stabbed was because in, the lady was hearing impaired. So the screaming was so intense. I'd never heard anything like that. And, and they were in a tussle. So in that split second, you know, I perceived that she was being stabbed. I was completely convinced I was wrong. And, you know, but had I acted the way that I have trained to be, most likely would have killed that guy. Mm-hmm. How did that uh, shift your policing? Well, it, it, this might sound really naive, but I felt like it was just a big game. It was my job. I was having fun. I was into, I never really thought through like, what if I, you know, if I killed somebody or I made a mistake or, uh, even though they, you know, they teach you those things in the Academy, I was 22, 23 years old. So that, firsthand experience there made me realize I could have, I could make a mistake and, and, and change my life, somebody else's life, or even, even if you do something right, you know, it's still the implications of what I was doing. It was the first time that I really reflected seriously on the power I had and uh, how the choices I made on the job, how, how truly significant they could be. Mm-hmm. Were there, um, were there any other moments like that during that during your police career that kind of shifted how you um, approached policing? I was put in a community policing unit as a, as a young officer. Maybe had you know three or four years on at the time, and I came from night shift and afternoon shift where it was just very very aggressive policing and working with the the two guys in that unit. We worked in a a, a housing project exclusively, but just their mentality towards people, the way they treated people, they had been trained in community policing and they just had a different mentality than the rest of the department. By the way, you're, you're kind of seen as not a real police officer when you're in one of those units. This is the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause community policing should be a department wide uh, 
mm-hmm. endeavor. In fact, if you have a police, a community policing unit, that might be a significant sign that you don't have community policing. But they had a they had a kind of a countercultural view of policing and how to deal with people. And then I had to deal with the same people all the time. So if you were rude and short with somebody, you're gonna see them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so that really started to shape. You know, when I realized the importance of relationships with people and 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 uh, just see the job differently than I had up until that point. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what community policing is? Yeah, I'll give you a, a real simple explanation. Uh, community policing essentially is you a partnership with the community to solve uh, problems related to crime and partnership with various entities in the community. So it's sort of the law, the police with the people focusing on long-term solutions sometimes to crime, underlying issues to crime through cooperation and support from the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, and uh, the the thing that it made me think of whenever you said like, if they, if they have, um, if a police department has, you know, a community policing effort. It makes me think of like in the business world of like, if this is a priority, we're going to make it a department. It's like, well, it actually, if it's a priority, it needs to be true for everybody. Right. Not yeah. just yeah. one specific department. Yeah. You, you can't have three guys that are community yeah. police or community police officers building relationships, trying to collectively solve problems. And then you have the rest of the police department treating that same area. When we weren't there just with an enforcement centric way strategy. So yeah, it was, yeah. It, that was definitely a problem. Yeah. You know, one, one of the big things that you talk about in the book is that um, it, for, for police culture to change, it needs to be more of an internal thing than an external thing. And how sometimes we, we very much tend to focus on like the external stuff, external solutions. You know, I know that you talk about like defunding the police is an external solution. And I, I would just love to hear um, maybe just generally first about why why don't the external solutions work in this? Yeah, so the, the culture, it can push back, and I cover this in the book, against practices that are s- sort of like what you saw with that leadership. He could mm-hmm. discipline me in a way that on paper wasn't disciplined, but it mm-hmm. was. And so, yeah. and, that, and that's a sign of the culture. And that was... And, and he was trained in that style of leadership, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and that wasn't his formal training, I'm sure, when he went to police leadership school. or So the culture drives the department in such a way uh, that it has you have to reform the culture. And what I argue for is procedural justice, a form of pre- procedural justice as a police philosophy, and community policing as a methodology. But that really can't be supported by a culture that would be uh fundamentally opposed to that style Mm -hmm. so if you have a police department that's been raised up and what i and the three things that i identify in the police culture social distance between people leading to the dehumanization which empowers abuse so this distance and enforcement strategies that we have now are so organic you can't just bring in a new strategy and have a the same people doing it as an extreme example you couldn't make the U.S. Army your social workers. There's yeah. just a different mentality. And if you brought in the social worker mission and practices and methodologies, it just would not work well. 
So policing mm -hmm. in the culture has been shaped in a certain way that when you try to bring in what I, the, the form of procedural justice or police philosophy I'm talking about in community policing, it, it, it will never truly be implemented because it won't, there won't be buy-in. Mm -hmm. It'll be on paper and in name only sort of like the unit we had in the nineties. Yeah. Can you kind of tease out uh, your philosophy of procedural justice? Yeah. So rather than focusing on, you know, numbers and enforcement, there's a, uh, and this isn't, isn't my theory. I take this from two police scholars, but yeah. they're, they're going back to, you know, how do you measure police success? It should be through what are the people calling for? What are relationships like? What is the satisfaction mm -hmm. of the police? Do they trust you? Do you have legitimacy? All these things are so important for long-term solutions. And also now when you get to community policing, imagine a police department that's trusted is seen legitimate by the community that's seen as one with the community. And then they implement a community policing methodology where they're in the community partnering with you to, problem, to solve problems. Uh, that would work very well. Whereas now there's an us versus them mentality with the police in the community, which is a big problem that comes from the police culture. So changing the culture, changing kind of the parameters of what policing is and targeting legitimacy and relationships to then implement community policing to solve community problems collectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I would just be curious to hear for the person who's saying, listen, I, I just believe that defunding the police is the best option for this. How, how would you just respond to that person? Yeah. Well, so, so these urban violence is a real thing. So, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of violence going on in incidents that the police handle and the majority of them, they handle very well. Mm -hmm. Who's going to show up? Who are you going to send? Yeah. So if you take the money away, who's going to show up? The place that have done this, yeah. it's been an abysmal failure. Yeah. Uh, the, the problem is not the money going into the police. The problem is what the police are doing. Mm -hmm. And if you want to abolish the police and replace it with somebody else, they still have to do the same functions. Mm -hmm. And even if you do that, can, can you really bring in a new entity apart from a historical culture or a history? You're still attached somehow. So it's almost yeah. an impossible mission. It's just yeah. not a realistic solution, but reform is possible mm -hmm. and needed. Yeah. Are there any other like external solutions that you tend to hear whenever it comes to the police? Well, we need external solutions that can impel, you know, internal change. Yeah. Uh, so don't get me wrong. They need to, yeah. there needs to be change. I mean, I, in an article I write, I, I have problems with Graham v. Connor, which is the Supreme Court decision that relates to police force. I think that needs to be changed. But um, external change is needed, but external change will never be realized unless internal change precedes mm -hmm. it in a sense. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to, this isn't going to be a quick fix. Oh, oh. And also yep. the relationship problem between the police and the people in, in largely in urban communities, it's not a one-sided problem. The police aren't completely responsible for the tension in their communities, but mm -hmm. we should start with the police because they are the servants. They are the leaders in the community and it should start with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, can you just speak? I mean, that, that's a, that's a great point is that, and this is, this is, I think also just, a, it's a, um, it's a truth in just a lot of relationships is that we tend to think that it's 100% the other person's responsibility, mm -hmm. but there's, there's parts on both. Can you speak just, just a little bit more to that dynamic? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this is between African-Americans and the police. 
and there's there's a a, a higher level of distrust of the police in those communities. I worked in one of those communities, and and much of it's warranted. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but there's also a portion of the community that's, and I think a large portion of the community that's not happy with the urban violence and the things that take place. However, their choice is to partner with an entity that they don't trust. So one of the ways I think that we can bridge that gap is what I notice in our community is a lot of the black church leaders, uh, organi um, community organizers are willing to sit at the table and have reasonable conversations with the police. So if you begin to connect with black leadership, I think in the city and minority leadership, and then you and, and, and you get them on board and you're transparent with them, you can together begin to mend the relationship with the community, uh, the, the majority of the people in the community who aren't doing anything wrong, but won't necessarily help you solve the problems that need to be solved. So it's mending that relationship. I think it starts with the police leadership, with community leaders, with gaining the trust of the majority of citizens who don't commit crimes, who then we stand together against the folks who do commit crime and cause chaos. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the, what the reform, what the, the, what the internal change can start to look like? Well, the internal change would be changed leadership. And I offer a leadership model that targets the police culture, specifically the tendency towards social distance, dehumanization and abuse. So the transform the culture first, and I identify that uh, those three tendencies in the culture. Once the leadership changes and you can start to shift the culture, then it will support different practices, police philosophies, methodologies. Mm -hmm. But you need a cultural transformation. Yeah, talk to me about like how I would just how do you go about doing that if you're not the one in charge. Well, you don't, you're not going to be, it, it has to be, yeah. it has to be a police chief and he has to have the support of, of people. And that's probably where external change is going to have to be able to open up the avenues and apply the pressure to say, this is what we need to change. Mm -hmm. So part of my book is just bringing people, I bring them into the police history on how the culture was formed, how the leadership culture, uh, how the leadership continues to affect the culture and how that culture. And I also talk about the police ethic utilitarianism, uh, how that drives the police strategies and leads towards increased tension and abuse. So the solution is to bring in a new leadership that can systematically transform these things. And my book exposes, I think, how transformation can take place because many people who bring in or who are calling for external change aren't bringing in the right pressure to change the right things internally. What, like, where does like the average citizen fall into the, like, I think of myself and like, what, what's the responsibility or is there a responsibility for the average citizen in the, in this conversation? No, I think, I think that's real important. The average citizen, once we become educated and mm -hmm. unfortunately the police, it's a political conversation. So if you mm -hmm. talk about changing the police, then it, you know, it tends to be left-leaning. If you say, the police are just doing their job. It tends to be right-leaning. But what we can come together and say is we need police reform. Police aren't responsible mm -hmm. for all the problems, but the current way mm -hmm. that it's progressing isn't working. And if people come together and understand the history of policing, which I provide, the culture of policing, how the leadership works, and then I give clear explanations on how intelligence-led policing 
targets neighborhoods uh, in a way that that I define as systemic racism. So opening up that door for them to understand this, so you can so you can see into what's going on. Because if you're the average citizen, you don't understand the conversation because you're not in there. So I think my book gives you an insider's view to the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to hear what's what's a a piece of history of the police that you just maybe you. I, I would just love to hear what's what's a fascinating piece of history about the police that um that you just enjoy just really stood out to you. Yeah, well, the, the history birthed this culture that became the problem. Mm-hmm. And so in the 20s and 30s, the police are so corrupt and brutal, they implement professional, uh, it's called the professional area of policing, pro- professional era of policing. And that's where they pull the police from the community and focus them on law enforcement, on enforcing the law. Up until then, the police were, I mean, if you watch an old movie, like what the police is, the, the police officer is the boxing coach at the gym, he's helping ladies yeah. carry groceries up. All that ended and they said, we're just going to do, we're just going to enforce the law and we're going to separate from the community. And the reason they separated the officers from the community was because of the corruption. Local politicians were were running the police and so they were tied in this corruption and they thought if we pull them out and we clean it up, we'll bring in police chiefs, right? Have the strict hierarchy with police chiefs, pull them out of the community, we'll, we'll clean up the corruption. And they did. But by bring, by giving police chiefs authority, which helped separate them from politicians, created the strict hierarchy, pulling them out of the uh, the communities, focusing on enforcement, created the social distance, and we and, and it birthed the culture of social distance, dehumanization, and abuse. So the irony that they were trying to clean up a problem that created a problem that we're dealing with today. Mm. Yeah, that's... It, I always, I always just love learning about the stuff like that because it helps just add greater context to it and everything. Um, I got a couple of the things that I want to ask you about, but before that, is there anything that we haven't mentioned in the book that you want to make sure that we talk about? Yeah. I, to, to understand that a police officer, if you read the book and you understand the culture, the ethic of policing, the leadership of policing and the current strategies, you will see that an officer with a good heart and good intentions will still target minority communities in a way that is biased and unfair. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether he's a black officer or a white officer or his intentions. Now that's hard to understand for a lot of people. And most mm-hmm. times systemic racism is explained based on a disparity. I don't just note a disparity. Uh, I think Thomas Sowell, if you're familiar with him, has been very clear in showing that just because you have a disparity, it could be systemic racism and oppression, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is. So I I go farther than a disparity of enforcement. I say the reason the numbers are skewed the way they are is because I'm going to bring you into the leadership, the culture, the ethic, and the strategy, and you'll see exactly why that guarantees the deck is stacked. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's unique about the book. I'm just not arguing for bias policing and increased violence based on the disparate the, the number alone mm-hmm. i'm showing why that number results exactly why the culture the leadership the ethic the strategy will ensure that disparity mm-hmm. are you worried about any like blowback or pushback on you uh i mean there's i've already gotten some i won't, I won't get into that but i'm a, <laughs> I've already got some, ironically, from conservative circles, and I'm a conservative evangelical. Yeah. And yeah. I just thought, and the person uh, who who criticized me in, in uh, anyways, 
I'm thinking, man, I was there for 24 years. I'm not just yeah. writing based on my research. I saw this. Yeah. I did yeah. this. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's going to come. I know it's going to come. Um, I honestly wrote what I saw, what I believe. Uh, I think policing is an honorable profession filled with great people. The best yeah. men I know and my closest friends are all police officers, but reforms needed. And it's not that hard to accomplish if we do it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one one of the things that you uh, write in there is that you talk about the the primary mission is justice and peace. And I, I would just love to have you just elaborate a little bit more on just how, like even even just through your experience of how you view justice and peace and even how it relates to, to policing as well. Yeah. And, and, the, and I provide that because I say the true mission of the police, despite our policy manuals and mission statements, is to enforce that mm-hmm. inherent and um, without a doubt of the average policeman and police leadership rely on enforcement. They believe they can enforce their way out of any problem. Therefore, the mission is enforcement, no matter what their mission statements say. I argue for keeping the peace as the overarching principle of policing. Often they'll break functions down into peacekeeping functions and enforcement functions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you show up on scene, the primary guiding principle or mission is peace. Mm -hmm. And sometimes enforcement will be the way you bring peace. But it's always subject to that mission of peace. If enforcement would somehow create, uh, take away the peace, then you're not going to enforce. If there's a better way to do it, peace is the way to go. And I think that aligns with justice uh, in the sense that if we're targeting a community and our numbers are disparate towards communities of colors and we can show there's a reason for that disparity, then that's not justice. Mm -hmm. Last thing I want to ask you is, what are you most grateful about for your time during uh, being a police officer? Most grateful. Or you don't you don't have to limit it to just one. You can you can give more than one if you want. What I'm most, you know, this might not be the answer you expect, but I am so grateful for being able to work for 24 years in an honorable profession that I was proud to do something that paid me relatively well, took care of my family, that made my parents proud that what I was doing. And the fact that I know that I got to do things that made a difference in people's lives and help them in some sense. So just being able to be part of that and feel like, you know, I, I did something over that 24 years that was truly meaningful. That's that's what I'm most thankful yeah. for. Oh, that's great. Well, Daniel, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, Rethinking the Police. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? I know it's on Amazon. It's on. It's uh, published by InterVarsity, so you can get it there. It's on Barnes & Noble. So I think anywhere books are sold, wherever you like to get it, it's uh, you can get it. So Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Take care. I think two takeaways for me for this episode is one, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast, is the importance of learning our history, of learning the history of the different things that we care about as well. 
because it provides further context. It provides greater understanding because sometimes we make decisions and we don't understand all the factors and we end up having a bunch of uh, consequences because negative consequences because of it, because we don't understand everything. And especially in conversations like this, we need to understand the history. We need to understand both sides of what, what has happened. And the other thing is the idea of it's both. It's the internal change within the police force that needs to happen. Also, it's the external measures that help make that happen. But it's both. Both things need to happen. And it's not just with the police. We can think about that with a lot of other things, too. Is that it's the external pressure, but it's the internal change, this wall, that leads to transformation in so many areas of our life. You think about it with um, with health. It's, it's the internal motivation of, I want to be a better person. And sometimes it's the external motivation of, well, you need to change things. Or... You're not going to be living a healthy, you're not going to be living a healthy lifestyle or you might not be living for very long. It's both. It's external and internal pressure. It's internal change. It's internal resolve. It's external pressure and how we need both of those things as well. And so those are, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. If you want to continue to learn from me, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I give three things each week that I'm learning from and some of the things that I'm learning about and that are engaging my curiosity. And with that, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you again to Daniel for being on the podcast today and for the conversation. Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.